week's episode is brought to you by Support the Mountain's Herbal Parasite Cleanse. This formula targets the small and large intestinal tracts and larvae, the most broad-spectrum formula available today. 100% organic, formulated by Dr. Mikio Sanki, author of the Esoteric Acupuncture Series. For 10% off your first bottle, visit shopyogahub.com and use the coupon code CLEANSE at checkout. Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Dr. Woolman. Hello, Christina, and greetings, everybody. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I am Dr. Glenn Woolman. I will be your medical guide today, along with Christina, as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy, searching for optimal health. Today's going to be an interesting show, Christina. Oh, yes. You know, Something I I've I, never heard about. That's why I'm like bouncing already. <laughs> hyper, hyperbaric medicine. We're going to be entering the chamber. That's going to be fun. <laughs> we should have done this at Halloween. No. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, I think I, I, I think I say this is going to be an interesting show all the time. Yeah, because it always is. I it's, guess that's it's correct. Always, you, you know, if it's something we've even heard about before, Glenn, I, I believe that you dive so deep into it with our guests that it, it becomes a new show altogether. Yeah, and plus it's interesting for me because I, I'm also learning great things from these people. So, and that's the those are the people we choose to have on the show. Interesting people makes oh. sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. So today we're going to be speaking with uh, a colleague of mine and a dear friend of mine, John Tessman, Dr. Tessman. He's board certified in emergency medicine. He's board certified in undersea and hyperbaric medicine, which is what we're going to be talking about a lot today. And he is also a fellow of the College of Chronic Wound Care Specialists. He's been the medical director of the Center for Wound Healing and Hyperbaric Medicine in Ventura, California, uh, for the last 10 years. Boy, he, you know, I was thinking as I was reading this, he would be a, the ideal person to have on every expedition of any kind. <laughs> <laughs> so set up the expedition. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So at this time, I'd like to welcome our audience to my friend and colleague, John Tessman. Dr. Tessman, welcome. Well, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Tessman. Thank you so much for honoring us today. And thank you for having me here. It's great. So, John, as the medical guide, what I usually like to do is explain to our audience the path that we uh, intend to take today. First, we're going to find out a little bit about you and what got you into medicine and how you eventually came through emergency medicine to, uh, hy to hyperbaric medicine and wound care. And then we're going to get into the actual... Uh, process of what hyperbaric medicine is all about, who should be knowing about it, when should people be thinking about it uh, for their own issues. How's that sound to you? It sounds like a great morning. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So the first thing we always try to find, uh, you know, showing the heart and soul of our practitioners. When did you get interested in medicine? How old were you? What were your influences? And just bring us up to date on that. Well, I was lucky because my father was a physician, and he instilled in me a love uh, at a very early age of the ability to treat people and take care of them. And back in the day when medicine was perhaps a little bit more liberalized and less constrictive, I was able to follow him on rounds. I was able, He would drop me off uh, in the lab, and I was looking at slides, and back wow. in that day, they had rabbits and frogs in the labs because that's what they used for pregnancy tests and all sorts of things. So it was an amazing time to follow him around. By the time I was in high school, I decided I wanted to go into medicine. And so that uh, was uh, a great joy for my father. And so I followed his footsteps, not in his profession, actually his specialty, which was OBGYN, but I wanted a little bit more excitement, so I chose emergency medicine. <laughs> <laughs> that's really and it was exciting <laughs> yeah i was gonna say that's way the other end <laughs> i don't know you know the ob could be pretty exciting uh like that but you know this is an interesting point uh that i want to talk about as we direction ourselves 
one of the things that's important in this show is to give uh, people that are listening, that are looking for careers, we're always trying to talk people into careers in healthcare and medicine and in uh, becoming a physician, possibly. And one of the advantages that I always talk about to medicine is that you get to choose uh, a specialty for many reasons. You choose a specialty, one, for the type of medicine you want to practice, two, for the type of people that you want to be practicing it on, potentially, and three, for the colleagues that you're going to be working with. I know in your particular case, you were in emergency medicine. For me, I loved it for many reasons. For you, it was not as fantastic as it was for me, but this was one of the benefits of being in medicine, that you were able to do great emergency medicine, but realize that that's not where you wanted to spend the rest of your life, and you had the opportunity to go in another direction. So you were in emergency medicine, right? And then you decided to change. What was that about? So I was... 30 by the time I started uh, residency and finished uh, in emergency medicine. And at 30, uh, one has unlimited amounts of energy. And <laughs> stress is never uh, an issue. It's never too much. Staying up night after night after night is not uh, problematic. And it's, it's a wonderful, was for me, exciting and incredible journey through medicine because it was so varied and yet so intense and, and it was a perfect fit for me. As I got older, I realized that I didn't want to stay up as many nights in a row, <laughs> wanted a little more quality, didn't want to be as fatigued, and the excitement just became uh, more of a burden than it was actually uh, an engendering experience, and I wanted a change. And a friend of mine, colleague of mine, uh, had recently been treated himself for uh, a chronic osteomyelitis and had hyperbaric uh, oxygen treatments. His best friend was running the chambers and said to him, why don't you come down and work with us? And then he loved it so much, he called me and said, would you like a different uh, or a change in your career at this point and go into something that you might find more rewarding. So I went down, worked with him, and loved it, and then became a board-certified specialist in underseeing hyperbaric medicine and continued to practice quite a rewarding new um, time of my life, new career choice and path. It was, it was really amazing. So... Uh, that's what got me out of emergency medicine and into hyperbaric medicine. That's fantastic. That's a great story. And again, uh, just to reiterate the concept of being able to, when you have a degree in medicine, having the ability as we go through life and life uh, offers us challenges and uh, good things and bad things, then we can adapt and move into other things. So this is great. So you, as you said, you, you then got your boards uh, in hyperbaric medicine, undersea medicine. What, is that, what does that uh, take to go through that training? Well, because it's a very new subspecialty, one of the newest, uh, as emergency medicine was when we started out, uh, Glenn, right. both you and me, it was new, right. uh, because of it, it being in its infancy, um, there are pathways to become board eligible uh, at the very beginning of a, of a new specialty, which is one called grandfathering, where you can um, take courses, study, become board eligible, and then take the boards, as opposed to having to go through a formalized residency program, uh, which ultimately happens in a specialty. For example, in emergency medicine. At first, there were many, many physicians practicing uh, emergency medicine, but they weren't board certified then they were able to, because of their experience, become board eligible and take the boards. Ultimately, that pathway closes as the specialty becomes more and more active and there are more and more members in it. And then uh, the only way to become board eligible is to go through a formalized residency program. And that's exactly what happened in undersea and hyperbaric medicine. So for me, I grandfathered in 
took courses, uh, went up to Seattle for a week at a time, uh, taking uh, specialized courses in the physiology and uh, what it's like to treat divers under pressure, commercial divers, very intense courses, so that I became board eligible, passed the boards. Now, that pathway has closed and you have to take a residency, a fellowship actually. And the fellowships are offered, they're about 10 to 12 nationwide. One I know is at uh, University of California, San Diego. They have a fellowship in undersea and hyperbaric medicine. And that will allow you to become board eligible and take the boards. So now it's more formalized and that pathway, which is the grandfathering, has closed. That was a great answer, especially for those that are thinking about that right now. I think you outlined it uh, beautifully. And you alluded to the fact that as part of the residency and the training, <clears throat> it's all about the principles. Now, when hyperbaric uh, medicine really started, for me at least, it was always about the bends or deep sea medicine. Divers would come up with nitrogen narcosis or the bends, and they would have to be put in hyperbaric chambers. And that was the extent of hyperbaric medicine, but it's certainly come a long way since then. And that's what we're going to get into. But I think before we uh, get near the end of it, we should start at the very beginning and figure out what is hyperbaric medicine. Give us some of the therapeutic principles so that we have an understanding. Then we'll get into some of the uses and we'll talk about many other parts. So hyperbaric uh, medicine and hyperbaric oxygen uh, treatments is utilizing oxygen under pressure. So what one does then is uh, fill uh, a chamber and it could be monoplace, which is a cylinder, about eight feet long, four feet wide. What happens is patients go on this gantry. They are introduced into the chamber. It is 100% acrylic. The two metal doors are closed. It's very spacious for the occupant inside. They can see out. They can watch videos. They can listen to music. And that chamber is filled with 100% oxygen. As it's filled, it increases pressure. As the pressure increases, it increases the concentration of oxygen in all parts of the body, especially not only the red blood cells, which become saturated quite quickly, but the serum as well. Now you have oxygen coursing through all parts of the body that normally may not get that. That would be places that are suffering from atherosclerosis, constriction, infection, cancer, blockage, uh, impingement, somehow. And so cells that would be suffering uh, from hypoxia, not getting enough oxygen, nutrition, not getting enough of uh, whatever they need to help grow and heal, are then getting the oxygen that they so desperately need to heal those areas. So it's oxygen under pressure. So what happens when you increase that chamber to 2.4 atmospheres absolute. What does that mean? How does that work? Would you like me, Glenn, to get into uh, some of the mechanisms at this point? Or yes, I do think you, you want me to stop here and let you guide me through this? I think get into a couple of the mechanisms. You know, it's interesting because, Christina, most people think that oxygen is something we breathe. They don't realize that in medicine we actually use it as a drug. Mm. And uh, we give oxygen in certain cases, and, uh, and sometimes there can be complications from giving too much oxygen, which we're going to get into. So, yes, I think uh, a little bit of the principles and the therapeutics right now would be a great idea. Go ahead, John. So uh, what happens then uh, in terms of the physiology is that um, the concentration of oxygen in uh, the system, in the serum and in the hemoglobin, is dependent on the pressure and the percentage of oxygen. So the pressure increases 2.5 times, it's 2.5 atmospheres. Now what does that mean? Well, right now, we're sitting at one atmosphere absolute, which is the entire weight of the oxygen and the nitrogen and everything else from here to the troposphere is the pressure that we walk around in. Now, we're used to this. We were born, and this is what we do. This is one atmosphere. Now we're going to increase that 2.5 times with 100% oxygen. What happens is you can get concentrations of oxygen up to 600 times what it is in uh, the normal uh, room air or our atmosphere. So 
How this was developed, which is pretty fascinating, is that the original Navy SEALs, which were called frogmen back in the day, were developing technologies to help save their divers who were down doing either special ops, cleaning bottoms of boats, doing uh, you know, special uh, work underwater in deep spaces and deep places. Some of those divers would come up and experience decompression illness, which is uh, a resaturation of nitrogen bubbles causing uh, problems with the bends. They needed to treat that group of people quickly and well. So they developed the diving tables. They developed all the uh, recompression, decompression chambers in, an, in, in a way to save uh, their divers. Then they found some of those divers that had uh, suffered from decompression illness had been burned, had been wounded, had diabetes. All of a sudden, while they were in chamber with their recompression, they were healing faster. And the light went on. And they realized, geez, this can not only treat decompression illness, but it is causing an improvement and a faster healing process because of the oxygen under pressure. And so it morphed basically from that to what are the indications of hyperbarics? What can it do? In other words, what are the medical uses now that we're talking about? That's exactly right. Okay, so what are they? Great question, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> I've been preparing for this. <laughs> Uh, timing, it's everything. <laughs> okay. The interesting thing to know here is that because in the 70s, uh, hyperbarics was being used for a plethora of different diseases, none of which were medically uh, tested or uh, were um, looked at closely. So there were times when hyperbarics was used inappropriately. You remember seeing pictures of Michael Jackson in a hyperbaric chamber to prolong uh, longevity. Uh, these were examples of people using hyperbarics in improper and inappropriate ways. So interestingly, what happened at that point is we realized our specialty needed to get itself a little bit more together. We needed to tighten down everything and become board certified. When we did that, uh, we used uh, studies evidence-based medicine, randomly controlled double-blind studies to prove that we had at least 14 indications for hyperbarics uh, that were tried and true. This allowed then the understanding hyperbaric medicine to set standards as well as convincing Medicare, Blue Cross, Blue Shield that these actual indications should be reimbursed uh, by insurances, which is important. Uh, important because this modality is a bit pricey uh, because there's a lot of technology involved. The chambers are not inexpensive and one has to be uh, totally on top of their game in order to provide hyperbarics uh, because of its oxygen under pressure. So what are the indications? Well, I'm going to read these off to you. Um, first is air or gas embolism, carbon monoxide poisoning, clostridiomyositis and myonecrosis, crush injuries, compartment syndromes, uh, and other acute traumatic ischemias, decompression sickness, arterial insufficiency, severe anemia, intracranial abscess, necrotizing soft tissue infections, osteomyelitis, which is refractory, delayed radiation injury, which is the soft tissue radionecrosis, compromised grafts and flaps, acute thermal burn injuries, and idiopathic sudden sensorineural hearing loss, which is a brand new indication that we got this year, which is nice. So those are the indications. Those are all evidence-based indications where hyperbarics has been shown and proven to help. That's a lot of uh, different, that's a, that's a very nice list. Christina, uh, as I was listening to that, I was wondering how many of those things you understood. And Christina represents the every person for us. So when you and I are speaking, uh, I clearly understood all the things. Uh, Christina, was there anything that you wanted to ask in terms of that list, uh, more of an explanation? Or are you okay? Uh, you know, I, I have to admit, I think 
for me, because they, they were more medical terminology, I, I had a, I had a bit of trouble. It's like, okay, but what is that related to? But, you know, so about 50% of them I didn't quite get, even though I'm trying to type as fast as I can. <laughs> well, so, John, what I'd like you to do then um, is to kind of break that whole list down and summarize it into some things that many people will get a better idea about. And they can certainly come back and listen to the show and then look up each one of those if they have a question about it. Or if a person actually does have one of those disorders, mm-hmm. they probably do recognize uh, what it was called scientifically, and they would be able to respond to that. But could you do that for us? Absolutely. And uh, here's uh, how it works, basically. Of those 14 indications, mm-hmm. uh, a couple of es- are esoteric, and many of them are very, very technical. But to break it down in ways that are a little bit less intense and a little bit less uh, medical jargon, what we generally treat in hyperbarics, which is what's important to know, is people that have uh, chronic infections do well in hyperbarics. And those people uh, are many times the diabetics mm. that have diabetic neuropathic or unable to feel wounds, ulcers, or uh, surgeries that are not healing in their lower extremities because they're not getting as much oxygen as they uh, normal people would because they have a lot of arterial uh, ischemic changes uh, in their lower extremities. Their wounds don't heal, proceed to infection, mm-hmm. can have a bone infection, and ultimately these people can lose their lower extremities. Mm-hmm. This, these are the diabetics that go to amputation. These are also the patients that are our favorites because we can reverse these changes with hyperbarics, save the wounds, and now we're in the limb saving business. Talk about a reward. That's why one of the reasons uh, this is such an incredible feel for me, because that's one of our mainstays of treatment. Also, people that have arterial insufficiencies, same thing. They may have blockages in the lower extremities. Patients that have bone infections, we treat those. Those are the chronic osteomyelitis. Patients who have radiation treatments. So you have a head and neck cancer, and you get radiated to that area to knock out the cancer parotid, uh, squamous cell carcinoma, something of that nature. Interestingly, what happens is six months, two years, five years later, you have a dental cavity. You take that tooth out, and because you've been irradiated under so much radiation to save your life, that never heals. Now that can go to a bone infection. We have shown that hyperbarics treatments before the oral maxillofacial surgery, then treatments, then post Treatments with hyperbarics will help save that patient from going into a chronic disease state. These are fascinating areas in medicine that really no one else understands or uh, has been taught because one of the most interesting things is, and I'm digressing, but in medical school, we're really not taught this information. In emergency medicine, where we're exposed to all the best subspecialists there are, we never see these. Mm. This is a, a subspecialty now that's fascinating because uh, we're the only people that really understand this kind of technology and can utilize it. So uh, the other thing we can treat is decompression illness, which is the bends. Uh, we can treat carbon monoxide poisoning, which happens not infrequently over the uh, holiday seasons when people uh, uh, unfortunately will use uh, uh, flawed uh, heating sources. Mm. Uh, the worst, of course, would be to uh, use uh, a barbecue inside of a van, for example, to heat the van. You know, in, in, in indigent, sometimes that, that can be a catastrophe uh, or a faulty heater. Uh, it can go on and on. So we can treat that as well. Um, I would say um, those are the mainstays of things we treat. Some of the others are a little bit more esoteric, but because of uh, the oxygen under pressure, we can treat that. So. I could go on and on, but I think that kind of covers what we're trying to accomplish here today. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think Christina could probably give the talk now. No, okay. yeah. <laughs> no I want to go in that chamber. <laughs> yeah, we all want to go in that chamber, and we're going to talk about that in a little while. Um, do you think this is a good time to talk about uh, some of the things that uh, are not the normal things that we treat, or should we wait for the research and do that a little later in the show and get more into the actual treatment right now? 
In t- well, in terms of research, I can speak with that for sure. Uh, there are, uh, it, it's difficult, unfortunately, to do randomized uh, controlled, double-blinded studies uh, to get your evidence based because sure. um, this is difficult. You would have to have one chamber that has oxygen at a pressure and another chamber that doesn't. And, uh, you know, treating different diseases, it's, it's very, very difficult. We are hoping to find evidence for chronic headaches, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Uh, We would love to find evidence uh, that it helps uh, with um, some of the uh, mental diseases um, like um, autism, cerebral palsy. Uh, There are some uh, outsourcing, uh, outlying um, hyperbaric chambers that treat that. We do not have any evidence based uh, to support that at this time, so uh, I cannot recommend that as a treatment. But uh, it would be wonderful if, if we could prove that uh, hyperbarics had uh, was able uh, to help. Um, chronic fractures, uh, some of the off-label uh, uses that we would like to have evidence based that don't are um, in um, some of the athletes, um, we would love to uh, treat concussions better. We would love to treat strokes uh, better, uh, sometimes post-heart attack patients as well. So uh, there's a lot of research that needs to be done. That's why I would love to see younger people come into this field and uh, use that uh, brain trust to stimulate mm-hmm. our <laughs> education and research. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the uh the process right now, let's say somebody, how does somebody get to uh, a hyperbaric chamber uh, from their doctor? Obviously, there are a lot of people out there with wound infections and things like that. And lots of times the natural process is to, you know, keep changing the wound, maybe debris the wound or cut out the bad parts and keep changing it and watch it over time. And then go into a little bit of alternative therapies like manuka honey and there's a whole specialty in wound care, but when does somebody start thinking about using a hyperbaric chamber? Well, first of all, let's talk about wounds for just a moment, and then we'll talk about hyperbarics if, if I could. Sure. So a chronic wound, when you have to start thinking about it, is by definition a wound that has not healed after three to four weeks. Now, most people heal within three to four weeks, but there is a significant amount of people who don't. And they can go on to a year or two and have non-healing. That's the kind of patient that should be asking their physicians, why isn't this healing? What can I do? Is there a wound care center and hyperbaric center uh, in town that I can go to? As a new subspecialty, it's amazing at how uh, limited sometimes uh, our presence is in the community in terms of the physicians not knowing that we actually exist. So it's uh, incumbent on the patients to ask their physicians then, can you get me to a wound care center? Well, what's that? Well, there is one. I saw it online. I saw it on this blog. I saw it on Glenn's show, whatever uh, their experience is. And or for me personally, uh, you can one can uh, call my specific wound care center and get an appointment to be seen. So we have found that of uh, the people with chronic wounds or problems with diabetes or problems with radiation or problems uh, uh, with uh, head and neck cancers or problems um, uh, with arterial insufficiencies can call us directly, and we can get you straight in that way as well. So there is no problem, I don't think, in direct referrals. I can't. Um, say that for every center, but certainly for mine, one can. So we found, Glenn, that 25 to 30 percent of our chronic wounds and diabetics become eligible and shown that hyperbarics will, will actually heal and treat them. So, uh, as well as the list of, of the other indications that we talked about. So now someone shows up at your facility, <clears throat> they meet with you or uh, they meet with someone else. How? What's the process when someone goes there? First, just like anything else, you take a history, a physical, and you make some decisions? Well, that's exactly right. Um, 
and we're moving from hyperbarics to wound care, but I think it's a very important concept because what happens in my center is that when someone comes in and says, for example, gee, I'm a diabetic and I have this ulcer on my foot. I really can't feel it, but I know it's, I think it's bad. It's been there for six months. No one seems to be able to do anything about it. What can I do? And so, yes, I start with a complete history and physical, but ours is a little bit different because now we become the detectives. This becomes uh, CSI for us. We have to determine exactly why this ulcer is there on this particular person and not getting better. So if I can speak just a second about how we do that, uh, I would love to, Glenn, you. Go ahead. Okay. So um, we find out what's going on with that foot. You know, is the person uh, having the wrong footwear? The smallest thing could be causing too much pressure, and that ulcer will never heal. Secondly, Mm -hmm. what kind of arterial flow is going down that leg? Is there a compromise? And we have screening tests for that to see if this patient needs an emergent vascular surgery consultation to open up an artery that is not flowing properly and not getting healing. Is his diabetes under control? Is there a presence of infection? Does this need to be surgically debrided? Can I clean it up here in my office? Does the patient need antibiotics? Is he on a medicine that is going to prevent healing? Does he have an underlying cancer? Is he on a blood thinner? Is you know, it's it's um, it's fun actually is what it is, you know, because nobody else looks at wounds like we do, and we then end up uh, closing them. It's like, it's like a crime scene investigation. It really is amazing. What's happening at night? Do you sleep on your right side? Do you sleep on your left side? Do we need to change uh, your mattress? Things of that nature. So that's what happens in my center, and then we come up with a plan. Okay, here's a list. Here's your homework. I need this blood test, I need this MRI, I need this x-ray, I need you to see this vascular surgeon, I need you to call me back for this culture. And uh, one of the beauties is that it's not like emergency medicine where the patient doesn't have a pulse or a blood pressure and you have to move within a nanosecond to save them. Some of these close within millimeters a week, and so I have the luxury of time. And the beauty is that now I'm seeing these patients week after week, and they become family. And there's the other reward. It's just an amazing, wonderful thing for me. Oh, nice. I like that. So now you're getting me all teary-eyed, and I was trying to talk to you about indications about... uh, (laughs) Don't don't make me go Oprah on you here. Yeah, there you go. Okay. I'll stay in my seat. Tell us about your childhood and the the traumas. (laughs) Yes. Part of that, uh, this all sounds fascinating, and I love the fact that you do a really good workup. You don't just, somebody shows up and you stick them in a chamber. Uh, One of the quick questions I have is, you have this large chamber, and I'm picturing, you know, hyperbaric oxygen at 2.5 atmospheres, pressure 100%. There's a lot of oxygen. Does it all, and somebody might have uh, a problem on their big toe. Are there chambers that you can use that you just put the foot in the chamber, or does everyone always have to go into a full chamber for a a small lesion? That's a great question. And the studies uh, in our society, understanding hyperbaric medicine, have shown that isolated body parts uh, do not work uh, in terms Mm. of getting oxygen under pressure because what happens is that the oxygen has to come in through the lungs, go into the bloodstream, increase the saturation there through the serum and then out to the tissues. If one does that just peripherally uh, by stick, uh, by placing a leg in or an arm that has the lesion, it doesn't work. Oh, that's great. So they have the, their whole body has to go into chamber. Wow. Excellent. I like that. That's... So I have a question because, I mean, just through experience of, of um, receiving a little oxygen, you know, through the little mask, Yes. <laughs> I mean, I could remember, I was, I was on some show and, and they had ah. this little bit of oxygen coming through and I, you know, I was supposed to put it over my face. Well, I had kind of high just a little bit of oxygen and I was like feeling really lightheaded, like, wow, you know, good. I felt great. Now what happens when the whole body is in this chamber and it's so much oxygen? I mean, 
is do, does the individual feel a little loopy like that? <laughs> Most of my patients have not experienced that which you're describing exactly. Uh, there's not much euphoria. Uh, there's a, a tremendous amount of relaxation involved mm. and a calmness uh, as long as someone is not um, susceptible to feelings of claustrophobia or confinement anxieties uh, that some people have because that changes everything. But we can we deal with that also as an aside. Um, mm. But um, I think because uh, there's pressure involved mm. and it's uh, actually uh, 2.4 atmospheres absolute is like going down uh, to 44 feet uh, underwater uh, of sea level. So, so um, there's a lot of other things going on. I don't know if they, I haven't talked to many people that have had the same experience as you, which is too bad because if they had, they probably would be lining up around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> we could be having this discussion on my yacht. <laughs> well, isn't that what they have these days? These oxygen bars? Oxygen bars, exactly. Right, where people are actually there sucking up oxygen. I mean, <laughs> There's no question that uh, it... Uh, it just enhances things uh, cerebrally, I think, uh, especially uh, if one is going to the oxygen bars because they're altered to begin with or they're under the influence of something else. Mm. I think it probably helps give them a little bit of clarity. Uh, allegedly, it's the greatest hangover cure um, mm. on the planet, uh, oxygen like that. I have never used it for that reason. <laughs> well, we just have to try that. Okay. Right. It's on my list of experiments. <laughs> Before we get into the actual protocol of of finding, you know, do you come in once a week? Are you in it for five seconds or two hours? Uh, let's talk about contraindications. There might be somebody that has a diabetic foot, or they have something on the list of fourteen that you mentioned before, or even something that might be, you know, in the research area. But they may have other things that would preclude them from going into the chamber. What are some of the contraindications? So there is really actually only one absolute contraindication, and that's the presence of a pneumothorax. Uh, that's a collapsed lung. Now, why is that a problem? It's a problem because when you increase oxygen under pressure, you're increasing pressure. When you mm -hmm. increase pressure, you're inversely decreasing volume. So... Um, what happens is uh, gas-containing organs get smaller as you go uh, and increase pressure, what we call diving, which is uh, to go to 2.4 atmospheres. Now you're fine. It's like diving. Uh, you will never get the bends if two things happen. One is if you never come up, and two is if you never go down, which means that the problem with diving is as you're coming up from depths. That's when you can have uh, problems. Once you're down there, you're fine. If you never go down, you'll never have a problem. It's, it's the ascent. Now, if you have a pneumothorax, which means that your lung has collapsed, and now you come back because your pressure is decreasing, your volume is going to expand two times, it can change into a tension pneumothorax. A tension pneumothorax is like a, a one-way valve in the lung, which increases, 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 and pushes everything else to the side, including the heart, including the aorta, and you have tremendous problems with blood pressure at that point. And there's only one solution, and that's putting a needle into that chest to open up the airspace to equalize the pressure. So that's a contra that's the only contraindication that never happens. You clinically we get x-rays before and that's the only contraindication. But uh one of the beauties of being in emergency medicine is that we're used to those kind of treatments. I've done this for 10 years and I have never had that as a problem. So I don't want to scare anybody. That's this is, this is just an answer to your question. There are some relative contraindications and those are Upper respiratory infections, because if you have an upper respiratory infection, sometimes you cannot clear your ears, and we haven't talked about that, but as you're increasing their pressure, it's very much like going to the bottom of a pool, descending in an aircraft, going up over a high grade. One needs to equalize the pressure in their ears. Most people can do that easily. 
other people have difficulty in that because their eustachian tubes may be a little bit small or they're congested. If one can't equalize, there's too much pressure on the middle ear and it's terribly painful and can lead to a rupture of the tympanic membrane. So that's a problem and a relative contraindication. However, we can, we can fix those if we have problems with decongestants or putting in the small pressure equalization tubes that the little children have had when they were small. We, don't, we do that uh, not infrequently on patients that have trouble getting down. Also, emphysema with CO2 uh, retention is a problem, meaning that some of the uh, smokers who have emphysema and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease lose their uh, hypoxia. All they have is a hypoxic drive, meaning this is a little bit difficult to understand, but if someone with emphysema or COPD goes under too much oxygen, they actually stop breathing. So you have to be very careful about that as well. Uh, it's well known in the ER, not too well, in, on, uh, but um, we look out for that as well. Um, pregnancy, which is very interesting. Pregnancy is a relative contraindication because we don't know the effects of oxygen under pressure on the fetus and what that will do to the maternal blood supply. We think it will increase, but there are some incidences where it could cause a vasoconstriction. Now, what would happen if a pregnant woman had uh, carbon monoxide poisoning? What would you do? Well, this is a very, very interesting uh, situation because that patient absolutely has to go into the chamber uh, because you will save the fetus uh, by doing that. And all of the patients that have been pregnant that have gone uh, into chamber with carbon monoxide poisoning uh, have done well. And so that's great. Yeah. Um, and claustrophobia, that's the other relative constant indication. There are some people that have can't confinement anxieties and just cannot get into chamber. As you'll see, what our chambers look like is that it's 100% acrylic, meaning you can see out completely an 8-foot by 4-foot chamber that you can, as I mentioned, watch videos. And so for most people, claustrophobia is not an issue. For some people, just the thought of getting into a tube and having the ends closed is enough. Now, those patients oftentimes will do well with the addition of Ativan or Valium and anti-anxiety medicine that will help calm them down. Once they realize that this treatment is not terribly um, uh, claustrophobic, all said and done, then they do fine. You know, I'm curious, uh, on a cellular level, uh, it seems to me that uh, a lot of the things that happen in infections and in the areas that you're talking about, we see that there are oxygen radicals that are being produced, uh, and that might be some of the area where the hyperbaric uh, chamber works to get rid of those oxygen radicals, but many, and, and you can correct me on this if that's not correct, but for many people nowadays, everybody's taking antioxidants. And I'm wondering if an antioxidant, if people are taking antioxidants, does that affect them in the chamber or is not a big deal? Or I don't know of any contraindication between taking an antioxidant and going into chamber. I think the free radical antioxidants uh, is not uh, necessarily uh, influenced by uh, oxygen that we're delivering. Um, Okay. Trying to just trying to think uh, what the, it stimulates neogenesis in terms of uh, uh, vasogenic uh, growth factors. It can stimulate bone growth. It can, stimu can stimulate uh, bones destruction of necrotic tissue. Uh, it uh, will help uh, the uh, arterials uh, to uh, reanastomose when 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 they need to. It's it's. Uh, but I, I don't think that there's a free radical issue or anything with an antioxidant. So antioxidants, in answer to your question, would be safe to take. Excellent. Let's talk about a protocol now. Somebody comes in, they have, let, let's stay easy, they have a wound infection on their foot, and you've done the complete workup on them, they've changed their shoes, they're now sleeping on the right side on a perfect mattress, and everything else is really good. They're ready to see you and go through a protocol. Uh, tell us what a, a standard protocol would be uh, for someone with that kind of a treatment. 
Well, it's a great question because each protocol is a little bit different uh, in terms of the disease state, but what you're defining is someone who has a diabetic neuropathic foot ulcer, generally uh, infected, that we can help and save the limb. So the protocol would be this. We would treat you or that patient with 30 treatments. So that's one treatment a day, and we are open five days a week. That's the general uh, model these days of all hyperbaric um, um, centers, Monday through Friday. So that's a six-week course. Now, what does the course involve? Each day you come in, it's a two-hour treatment. So you start your treatment, and then there's a clock that starts. Your, uh, we monitor you to the second because uh, we have an entire profile. As we increase the pressure, it slowly goes all the way to 2.4 to 2.5 atmospheres under a 10-minute uh, uh, compression window. Then you stay at pressure for 90 minutes, and then you come off for 10 more. So in the middle of that treatment, we have what's called an air break. That means we take you off 100% oxygen, put you on room air by the application of a mask, just like what you had, Christina, uh, when you were trying that type of mask. And uh, for five minutes, you're breathing room air. Why is that? It's to prevent any problems with oxygen toxicity, which can be problematic. So we're watching you to the second while you're in there. At the end of that treatment time, then, you're back to our atmosphere, one atmosphere, doors open, and off you go uh, to uh, finish your day. We have different runs at different times. Uh, we have uh, three chambers that we use, so we run three patients at a time on the two hours. So we go from 8 to 10, 11 to 1, 2 to 4 type thing. So we have uh, three sets is how we run. Mm. Now, let's say you uh, just came out of surgery uh, traumatically, let's say. Let's make this exciting. Uh, you were a mountain climber and you fell and uh, you had a problem with your ear and the plastic surgeon had to uh, fix that cartilage or reattach part of it, which is not an uncommon injury. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the flap doesn't look good. It looks like we have a problem with the blood supply. Uh, we could lose uh, a, a very important appendage here, which is impossible to replace. We would call you uh, a compromised flap, and then we would do two treatments a day, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, for a series of 10 treatments. So in one week, in two weeks, you'd be finished. Let's say then, to, to finish, you had um, the delayed effects of radiation. Now you've had a squamous cell carcinoma of your neck or a parotid tumor, or Let's say you uh, had uh, a pelvic mass, or let's say you had a rectal uh, problem, and, you, and these are very common um, cancers that require quite a bit of radiation to be treated, and you're having a problem with healing later, and many different problems. You might need a treatment protocol of 70 treatments for me, which is about six weeks. It's quite a long time, every day in my chamber. The beauty is that we have such a warm, loving environment where we are that everyone becomes family, and it's just it's a joy to see everyone. Not a week goes by when there's not seized candies from someone and <laughs> cupcakes and tamales, and oh my gosh, it can be dangerous, that environment, uh, <laughs> nutritionally. But it's all good. All good. It's all good. So at the end of a, of a six-week, 30-hour uh, treatment, if somebody... Do you expect to not see the wound anymore? If they still have the wound, do you extend the treatment, or you just say you've had enough and we can't do any more? No. Uh, at that point, uh, the uh, evidence-based studies show uh, that one needs to uh, re-examine everything in that wound uh, at that 30-day period, uh, thirty, not 30 days, but a 30 treatment period, right? and see what is going on. Why isn't this wound healing? Have I missed an infection? Is the arterial system still working? Are they really offloading? Are their sugars under control? What is their diet like? Uh, are they getting enough protein? Uh, do they need supplements? Uh, do they need more offloading? So uh, 
the beauty of our center is that we track and look at that, as well as looking at the wound weekly. So they're in hyperbarics daily. They're seeing me weekly for a complete assessment. And then in 30 days, uh, we have uh, red flags that go on uh, on our uh, tracking systems that say, this wound is not responding as it should. We can graph that in terms of dimensions, which we measure every time, and volume, and see exactly uh, what that wound is doing. Is it responding as should or isn't it? And if it isn't, why? And how do we get this closed? Okay, so now we've got somebody um, who's going through it for some reason or another, and you're getting good results from that. Do you get concerned about complications or side effects? And if so, what are those that you're looking for? Okay, interestingly enough, um, uh, the complications, let's see what I have here, are tympanic membrane problems, which we talked about. That's, uh, in, the, that's in the ear. The middle ear. Yeah. Right. A very interesting thing is that what happens is that the lens of the eye and uh, in the lenticulus, nuclear lenticulus of the eye, the lens becomes less pliable. And what happens is your vision shifts, and this is temporary, uh, from far vision to near vision. So most people who read gla- need glasses for reading all of a sudden do not need their glasses to read, and they're really, really happy about this until they go out and start driving. And then they can't see the stop signs, and they can't see uh, as well uh, their far vision changes. So they have to be very careful and cognizant of the fact that their vision is going to shift from hypermetropia to myopia. And this is temporary. So so that's one of the uh, side effects and consequences as well. Within a few weeks after treatment, sometimes uh, uh, as much as six months, depending if it's a long treatment protocol, uh, their vision will change back. does that, uh, before you go on to other side effects, so does that inherently say that anybody that's coming for your treatment uh, has to have a driver? No. Uh, they actually do pretty well um, in terms of uh, their myopia. Uh, it's just that they have to be cognizant of the fact that they're not going to pick up some of those visual cues, visual cues as quickly as they had before. So, you know, they just can't be driving in the fast lane down the freeway expecting to see uh, their exit in two miles. Uh, They may pick it up on only one mile. So we have to be careful. Everybody should uh, know about uh, toxic chemical sites and also hyperbaric chambers. (laughs) You don't want to be driving around one of those chambers, I guess. No, it's not that bad. No, it's, it's easy to correct. What we do counsel patients, however, is not to see their optometrist and get new glasses because those changes are temporary. So when they think they need glasses for uh, far vision, uh, it doesn't work. Okay. What are, the other, what are some other side effects, if any? You know, that's about it. Um, uh, there can be oxygen toxicity, but we monitor that very carefully. Um, one has to be very careful with patients who uh, have a uh, ejection fraction less than 40%, meaning that uh, their hearts are a little bit weak and are not able to pump as um, strongly as a normal heart. Uh, with oxygen under pressure, there's a little bit of vasoconstriction and a little bit of decreased cardiac output, and those patients can actually then uh, be precipitated into uh, pulmonary edema or congestive heart failure, meaning fluid backs up a little bit into their lungs. So on patients who are older or have uh, any comorbidities of heart disease, we have to be pretty careful uh, that their ejection fractions are good. That's from a cardiac echo. I talk to the cardiologist. It's one of the many phone calls I make during the day. Uh, and uh, just be sure that that patient is okay uh, physiologically uh, to uh, go through one of my treatments. What uh, You mentioned this earlier about the expense. What's the cost of uh, this, and is, does insurance cover it? Because we're evidence-based, because we have double-blind uh, controlled studies, because the insurance companies uh, believe in us and Medicare as well, we follow their Medicare guidelines and uh, the Blue Cross and Blue Shield guidelines as well. So every one of my treatments is covered by insurance. 
which is good. Uh, because I'm hospital-based, an outpatient department of my hospital, uh, there's some Medicare facility charges which become quite uh, steep. And uh, it's a, and so I think the, the price for uh, the hospital uh, per treatment is anywhere between $800 to $1,000 a treatment. Um, I, of course, am a poor, struggling, you know, hyperbaric specialist saving limbs and lives and people loving me. Right. Uh, I think mine's about $85. So uh, I would treat you for free because it's not right. that much for me. It's the, it's the hospital. It's the cost. And then I believe I've had, you know, some of my patients... If there's a copay that's difficult, that's sometimes difficult for them. It, it all depends on the insurances. So, sure, I understand that. Listen, John. Uh, usually, when we have uh, an emergency physician, Christina loves the emergency department stories. But I think we're going into a new realm right now. Uh, we may have something that we've never done before. Are there any chamber stories? <laughs> and, and You've been even, waiting all day for that one. <laughs> I even practiced how I would say chamber. Do you have any I, stories of anything I, you could share I, with us? I think the best one for me, uh, when I initially started this, uh, I was working in an uh hospital in Pleasant Valley where I started, uh, I had mentioned that a friend of mine said, come on down, you're going to love uh, hyperbaric medicine, uh, come work with us. He was in an inpatient, meaning in-hospital uh, chamber, where we had a little more sophisticated or physiologically tuned program where we, where we could uh, stabilize patients who uh, were on ventilators, who had arterial lines. And we got a call uh, at 2 o'clock in the morning about a diver uh, who had just come up, who was unconscious, uh, was uh, not moving, and intubated, and could you do anything? And uh, we said yes. And so we mobilized uh, my whole team. I came screaming down from Santa Barbara as the helicopter came uh, into uh, land, and off this unconscious person comes, uh, diver, uh, wetsuit, uh, not moving, intubated and we get him uh, dialed into the chamber get him down to the deepest depth we can go because for decompression illness you have to go below 2.4 atmospheres you have to go to 2.9 or 3.0 whatever your chamber can hold we got him down there uh, you hold him down there for uh, about an hour and then uh, it's a long six hour treatment uh, in chamber uh, wow. for the bends uh, by hour four, he was opening his eyes. By hour five, he was breathing on his own. By hour six, as he was coming out, the first thing he said to me was, thank you. Thank you for letting me grow up with my two-year-old child. Mm. It was oh the most gosh. amazing thing. So it was great. And wow. I, I am so into this. <laughs> <laughs> That's very sweet. And wow. thank you for sharing that with us. I th that could potentially e at least equal some of the emergency in the pit stories in the pit <laughs> yeah you know, what's interesting is is the emergency room stories and i had 25 years of them i never felt as rewarded as i do now um good for you i, I just it's just it's wonderful so it's good it's all yeah good. and i'm so happy that you found your place that's important and it's important for everyone to find their place and that's again one of the things that medicine does if you're in something and things change you can find a new place hopefully John, before we get to your health tip, when you were preparing for this show, is there anything that you wanted to mention that we haven't discussed yet? Um, just that um, I think wound care and hyperbarics is still an underutilized treatment modality that's available to the community because it's not really been... Um, uh, taught in medical schools and residencies to date. Uh, I, I 
think that what I would like to see is that the general community become more aware of this so they can follow the same model that the pharmaceutical companies use is with information about specific sorts of medicines to get out to their family practitioners, internal medicine doctors or specialists or contact me directly to get help for their chronic wounds and see what we can do. So that would, that would, that's what I'd like to see. That'd be great. And certainly Magical Medical Tour and Yoga Hub will do our share for you. Thank you. That's great. <laughs> so as we come to the end of our show, we always ask our guest for a health tip. Do you have something for us? I do, actually. I thought about that. And one of the things that's helped me the most in all these years of not sleeping and poor nutrition when it happens and overextension is to battle some of the virons that are out there and the viral problems that uh, plague us because there's no good Western medicine treatment. And I have found the greatest one is a Chinese herb called yin chow, Y-I-N-C-I-A-O, and it comes with echinacea, and it's only available in the health food stores. And I think of all the things that I've taken, and you must take it at the very, very beginning of just the thought of having a viral upper respiratory tract infection. It's helped me more than anything else. So that's my health tip. Beautiful. <laughs> Christina, anything you wanted to uh, add before we say goodbye? Oh, when's our appointment? <laughs> Anytime you want. I will send you my schedule. So come on down and see me. You would, or so come funny. on up and see me. It would be great. You would love it. And you would love my crew. Well, great. What's hilarious is, is I am very claustrophobic. Ah, okay. And I could remember the time when they had to slip me into an MRI, that yes. tunnel. And yes. oh my gosh, I said, all right, meditation, you better be at your best. <laughs> it's one of the questions we ask our patients, actually. But Can you're you saying that your chamber is clear. Yes. See, so that's very different because those it's MRI tunnels are not clear and they hum and they tick. <laughs> like being shot at in there. You know, I, I will say, uh, Christina, that they've, they've been aware of that for many years and they've changed. They've done a lot of work to change that because clearly many people came into the chamber, into the MRIs mm. uh, that way. So they've widened them so it's not as close anymore. And they also have these glasses that they can give you that have reflective mirrors in them that allow you, even though you're facing up, you can look out uh, and they will have things on a wall that you could be watching and music. So there's lots of things going on there. But that brought up another question for me, John. Can you have a uh, group go into the... Uh... <laughs> Into the chamber, we've had we've had mothers with children go in with carbon monoxide. Yes, uh, huh. we've had mothers with two children go in uh, with carbon monoxide problems uh, as long as they can fit. Uh, but but interestingly enough, and I didn't really mention this earlier, there are two types of chambers. One is a monoplace, which is the cylinder which we described, which you'll see a slide of. The other is called a multiplace, and that's a, either a very large diving bell or the size of a room. Where it's filled with not 100% oxygen, but it's filled with uh, with air under pressure, and the patients then wear uh, kind of like a Captain Nemo headset. I don't know if you remember watching uh, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, but they had funny-looking helmets that were all clear, and they put that seals at the neck, and that's how they get their uh, their oxygen. But their whole bodies are under pressure in the multi-place chamber, and then many could go in. Wow. But that, there's only one or two of those around. One actually is in Avalon, uh, and there's another, uh, I think, down at um, possibly UCLA. Hmm. Are they using these in other countries, or is it mainly in this country? No, they use it in other countries. Uh, it's, it's used everywhere. Uh, Clearly for decompression illness in any dive right. place or right. with the commercial divers for sure. Right. Uh, and there are, and, and they have expanded that as well. Um, I, I think we're more cutting edge here, I believe, uh, which is not always the case, but I, th I think in hyperbarics we are. I'm grateful to our very special guest, Dr. John Tessman, for sharing his wisdom, experience, and expertise with us. I would like to also thank my teachers and healers for allowing me to be on my journey. I look forward to getting together with 
everyone from Magical Medical Tour and Christina and Yoga Hub, thanking Segovia and the rest of Yoga Hub. And John, thank you so much for being with us today. Until next week, when we explore another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy, I wish you all optimal health. Thank you so much, Dr. Tessman. It's been a real pleasure and honor to have you on our show. It's, uh, <laughs> boy, I am so interested in this chamber now. <laughs> like it's pretty magnificent, all well, this new technology, right? That's great. It's been my great pleasure as well. It's been a lot more fun than I thought it was going to be, and that's really wonderful. And um, let's hope we got the word out. So yes, that's good. And we're do. open. Anyone wants to come by and see my chamber, you are more than welcome. Thank you so much. Okay, everyone line up. (laughs) And also thank you so much to Dr. Glenn Woolman and to each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're always grateful for your continuous support and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. If you would like to contact and connect with Dr. Tessman, you can do so through the website cmhshealth.com dot org cmhshealth.org and if you would like to contact his office directly we will post his number on the website itself and of course for those of you who would like to connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman you can do so through his website glennwoolman.com where you can learn about his metaphor square breath and I do encourage you to do so as it has worked so well for so many of us Again, we're always grateful for your continuous support. And now at any time during any of our shows, you can simply scroll down on the screen if you're watching it through your computer and uh, post your question through the comment box. And if you're listening to this on your iPhone or your mobile device, you can always give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. And be sure to leave us your contact information and we will get back to you and with an answer or another comment in return. Again, thank you so much. And we look forward to any comments and suggestions or anything that you might want to learn about in the future. Until next time, namaste. Namaste.